There are times when I have said out loud, try and make sure no one's around so they cart me away, but I've said out loud, Lord, why do you tolerate me? If I were you, I wouldn't tolerate me. And I suspect there are many of us, we have those moments, especially when we know that we're disappointing the Lord, we're misunderstanding him, or we're just plain screwing up. And yet the gospel perpetually reminds us that though God came to us as man in Jesus, it is not a mere man who judges us, but rather a compassionate God who knows our frailties, and so we must never yield to despair. There is always hope. One might even think of faith as the mystery of hoping when all seems hopeless. Our gospel text takes us to the second time that Jesus predicted his passion. Now you recall in last weekend's gospel, Jesus made his first prediction of his death and resurrection. And Peter had the audacity to oppose him. And the Lord swiftly cut him down to size. And, Pete, and he called Peter what? Satan. And that word in Hebrew means what? Adversary. Very good. But how did the disciples in today's gospel respond to Jesus' second prediction? Well, we're told they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to question him. As with Peter last week, the idea of a suffering Messiah was simply too much for these disciples to grasp. It was unacceptable. It was scandalous. The Judaism of their day was filled with expectations of a warrior messiah, an anointed deliverer who would restore the throne of King David and oust all the non-Jews from Israel. Jesus' prediction of his passion ran against the grain of all the disciples' expectations and it scared the daylights out of them. They didn't dare ask Jesus any questions because they saw what happened to Peter, the leader of their group. But more fundamentally, they did not ask as they were what? Afraid. They had not yet come to really love Jesus or to understand how much Jesus loved them. Fear was more powerful than love. And when you and I do not know or do not allow ourselves to be loved by the Lord, fear will always enter in. Jesus and the disciples then came to Capernaum, most likely staying at home of Peter and his brother Andrew with their wives and children. It had to have been a rather crowded house and the demands of Middle Eastern hospitality would have kept Peter and Andrew's wives quite busy. And in the house, the Lord was asking, what were you arguing about on the way? It is necessary to keep in mind here 
that whenever one reads or hears the expression, the way, in Mark's gospel, it refers to the way of discipleship, the choice to be a follower of Jesus, and therefore a choice to be one who picks up one's cross and follows the Lord. Now Jesus, of course, as God, knew full well what they were arguing about. Who was the greatest among them? We fallen human beings are drawn to power as much as a moth is drawn to flames. And Jesus knows, just as he knew their thoughts, he knows your thoughts, he knows my thoughts. And so the Lord asked the question, what are you arguing about? Not to entrap them. And he, he asked us, what are you and I arguing about? What's so important to us? He's not asking to entrap us, but rather to help us to develop a genuine spiritual life, which requires that those destructive thoughts that we hide in the recesses of our minds be named, brought into the daylight, so that their power can be broken and replaced with truth. We moderns tend to forget a fundamental spiritual principle. Our thoughts determine our lives. Our thoughts determine our lives. Do we have thoughts of anger, animosity towards someone who hurt us? Are our thoughts towards these people uncharitable? unwilling to forgive, then we will continue to develop into angry, uncharitable, and unforgiving people, and we will be that way on the day of our deaths. Do we seek to forgive? Is our desire our thoughts for peace and reconciliation? Then we will be peaceful, reconciling people. Our thoughts determine our lives in this life and in the next. But what was the disciples' response to Jesus' question? Silence. Why? Embarrassment, perhaps. But more fundamental, I think, than embarrassment was the reality they were not on the way at all. Oh yes, they were walking with Jesus. They were talking with Jesus. They were following the Lord. They were just uh, one big happy little group. It's easy to just claim one is walking with Jesus, one is following the Lord, but they weren't following him at all. They were not on his way while they're walking with him. They're on the way of the world. They were operating according to the values and the priorities of the world. And the gospel asks us, are you and I doing the same at times? Oh yeah, we go to Mass. Oh yeah, we plop our butts in a pew. Oh yeah, we go through the prayers. We go through all the motions. But our minds, our thoughts are really where? Are they really on the way with Jesus in discipleship? Or are they somewhere else? And so Jesus did something that was remarkable for the period of time. We moderns don't really think of it much, but we perhaps should. Jesus brought another person into the group. Who was it? A child. Most likely it was the child of Peter or of Andrew. 
Now, again, this may not seem important to us, but it is. You see, in most ancient societies, a child was not a legal person. The Romans, for example, did not recognize a child as a person with rights until the age of majority. Up to that time, the father of the family had exclusive control over his children, including the right to execute them if he wanted to do so. And children had no legal recourse, no protection. Anybody here ever had a fantasy about maybe doing that? Abortion was commonplace. Unwanted babies were simply left on a rock pile or a garbage dump to die. You could abandon your children. You could just kick them out and say, you're on your own. Among the Spartans in Greece, when a child was born, it was carefully examined by the elders. If there was the slightest physical deformity, or, this, or any perceived defect in the baby, they immediately tossed it over a cliff. If you go to Greece today, where ancient Sparta was, they, their cliff is marked. This is the place where defective babies were hurled over the cliff. Sadly, there are a growing number of people in our own society that are advocating the extermination of mentally or physically defective children. Such evils were never part of Judaism. But a child was expected to start taking on adult roles and responsibilities very early in life to contribute to the welfare of the family and the larger community and be prepared for the responsibilities of marriage and family life. Antiquity had no real concept of childhood as we moderns do. So by taking this child into the midst of his disciples, taking this non-person into the midst of his disciples, his church, Jesus makes it clear. Guys, follow my way. In my way, in my kingdom, in my church, the values of the world are going to be turned upside down. It is not going to be the powerful, the politically astute, the wealthy, the movers and the shakers of society that are the center of God's concern and attention, but the lowly, the poor, the defenseless, the sick, the dying, those who have no status, those who are considered non-persons. And, says Jesus, when a disciple following the way receives such a person, he or she is receiving the Son sent by the Father. It is not by accident, then, that the Church, Catholic West and Orthodox East, created such institutions as orphanages and hospices. These things never existed in antiquity until Christianity came around. It was the church that created homes for the mentally ill, the mentally and the physically handicapped. It was the church that took in unwanted babies left exposed to the elements. It was the church that reached out to the poor, pagans and believers alike. It was the church that from the very beginning shocked the pagans of antiquity and shocks the pagans of today's society 
by asserting that abortion is murder, plain and simple. It was the church that developed a ministry to those who were in prison to bring them hope. It is the church today that is one of the largest providers of health care to both Catholics and non-Catholics in this country. The Lord continues to ask each of us, what were you arguing about on the way? Are we on the way of discipleship? Or do we try to compromise the values of the gospel to accommodate to those enticing ways of the world? Do our voices join with the worlds that insist we uncritically accept its values? Some churches are doing that. But it really translates into allowing ourselves to abandon the call for ongoing conversion of heart and ignoring our obligations to those in need. Beginning with our baptism in Christ, we were set on the way, the path of discipleship. Not alone, never alone, but in the community of believers, the church, Have we failed at times? Have there been moments we swallow the values of the world? Are there times we just simply screwed up? Jesus, who is the way, never abandons us. He calls and graces us to get back on track because Jesus does something you and I can't. He sees beyond the times we disappoint him. He sees beyond those times that we misunderstand him. He sees beyond our failures. He sees beyond our screw-ups. He sees beyond all that stuff to the potential that lies within each and every one of us to follow his way and become the instruments through which he can bring so many blessings into this world? Are there times that we have not been on the way, that we've not been disciples of the Lord? It's never too late to turn back. It is never too late for the divine mercy.